0: Well, this time, if you've got a student in junior high or high school, they are free to head on out to their own programming. Otherwise, also, just as a note, if you have a youngster who is in the range of understanding uh, the conversation about... St. Nicholas, we would encourage you if you don't want to enter into that conversation with them um, and you kind of participate in that fun piece in your home, uh, feel free to uh, allow them on out at this point to their children's ministry as well. But in the meantime, we are moving into what we're calling Forgotten Christmas Classics. Great conversation on the idea of this idea of losing people. But before we dive in, how many had a great Thanksgiving? Anybody have just awesome? Good one, man. Awesome. No drunk, no drunk uncles, good, that's nice. Um. Sometimes that can happen. But the, the reality is, uh, I love our family. We got to go up to the cabin and hang out with uh, my brother-in-law and my wife's side of the family, which is always exciting and fun. Eight kids running all over a cabin is nuts. It's, it's a blast. But at the same time, came back and hung out with my, my side of the family. And just, it's so nice. One of those things where you just feel whole, you know? You kind of leave. You're like, ah, oh, I feel refreshed. I feel like I've got my history, my present, and the future all locked in one location. Family has a tendency to do that. And so I just, I kind of look around. I'm just glad. I've never lost any of those. I mean, I've lost family to death, but not lost them like I almost did a few years ago. And uh, we don't always celebrate all of our kids' birthdays. When you have four kids, to celebrate every single birthday in a big way, it gets really expensive. So we kind of pick major birthdays, and we kind of instead say, okay, you got an opportunity to have a party, or we'll go somewhere. So a big major birthday for my son Nate a couple years ago came up, and he's like, I want to go to Legoland. And so we pack everybody in the car, drive down to San Diego. Actually, not every Everybody, just me, uh, my wife, Nate, his cousin, and my son, Jonathan. And we get in the car and we drive down there. And we get in on one of those good price days. And we, we start walking around and enjoying the day. It's kind of what Legoland is. Kind of entertaining ourselves with what's there. We get involved in one of these like team ride games where you're like on a, on this fire hose and you're shooting. So anybody know what I'm talking about? You're shooting that fire hose and trying to put out all this fires and stuff. And so we get off that and we explore a little bit more and we go over and the boys are like, we want to drive the cars and they're like cars. And we're like, okay, let him get on the cars. So we, and we let him get on, the the older boys get on the cars. Well, I got Jonathan. He's only about four or five. And so he's relegated to the kitty cars, you know, which is like one lap. The other one looks like this massive street zone that you're driving around in. And so I'm glad it's only one lap because I still have the shot of this. Jonathan is driving. He's like, pop, pop, Bam bam. I think he hit every curb and every angle of the curb, all the way around one loop. And so, I'm really scared when he becomes a teenager and actually starts driving. But the reality is that he loved that thing. Got out, is all excited, and we go stand to watch Bubba and his cousin to, to watch this whole thing go on. So, we're, I'm waiting there, and he's like, what are they going to do next? And he's talking to me. And so, I pull out the camera, and I started getting it rolling, and I'm trying to record stuff. And I go, hey, did you see what? And Jonathan's nowhere to be found. He was just right here, and now he's gone. I turn around, I'm expecting him to be like a a little ways away from me, and I'm looking over there. He's not there. I turn around, is he by the helicopter? He's not there. I run over, is he by the other cars? He's not there. He's nowhere. By this point, I come back. Anybody been in this feeling where you're like, your heart rate's elevated, all the men are like, you stay calm, dude, I got this handled. I know where this kid is. You know, that's what I'm thinking in my head. Don't panic. My wife comes out of line after dropping the other kids off. Hey, where's Jonathan? Uh, you never want to be in this position, guys. <laughs> this is not a good one. Is she, you know, I'm like, uh, 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 somewhere in the park, you know, kind of answer. She's like, what do you, you haven't called info yet? You haven't told him that? And she's like, on security. Everybody's like, lock down the park. And I'm sitting here thinking, shh, it's my mistake. Don't tell him." Like, yes. we, we managed to find him standing by the fire, guys. And he's just sitting there going, you know, staring at the thing, and he doesn't have any clue. He's not supposed to be gone. Yeah, and so, thankfully, we still have Jonathan in our lives. We found him. We got him. And he's done it two other times to us in other locations. This kid does not want to be owned by us. I don't know what's wrong. But um, the reality is we're glad Jonathan's still with us. But what's interesting is while all of us are panicked to lose somebody in our family, few of us are panicked to realize we've lost a lot of amazing people in history. That history, as it's rolled by, has evaporated and and caused us to lose track of some of the people that maybe we shouldn't have lost track of. In fact, what's happened, especially with Christmas, is that we've replaced people and brought in other things into reality, into the Christmas season, that honestly shade over some of the amazing pieces that we, as adults, could have for our children and our own lives. And one of those that we're going to look at in this kind of forgotten Christmas classics of people that we think we know, but we don't, or maybe we didn't realize, wasn't, was part of, of church history or whatever. We're, just, we're gonna look at the first one. That's Santa Claus, the jolly old elf, right? This big fat guy wearing a red suit that climbs down um, chimneys. How did the world did we get here? That this is the number one guy of Christmas, the top dog of the season, riding in a sleigh, pulled by reindeer, one with a big red nose. I mean, this is, an elf on the shelf is trying to compete at this point, but you're still not gonna knock Santa Claus off because he owns the elves, right? I mean, this is how the reality is. How did we get here in, in Christian America, as they call it? How did, how did the time roll us to this guy? What happened to the original dude named St. Nicholas, and who is he? So it's, it's one of those situations that, honestly, I'm entering into kind of nervously. I'll be quite honest with you guys, because there's a debate over Santa Claus And I think it's resolved best by teaching who he truly was. But let me explain how this works. Inevitably, every year I will mention Santa Claus at some point. And when I mention Santa Claus, two camps show up. One camp runs at me, angry I've mentioned Santa Claus, reminding me that if you just reverse the letters around, you'll get Satan Claus, okay? So just put it that way. See that? Santa just switched some letters. You get Satan. That's how it works. And there's some people out there who's like, literally, Santa is Satan. And that's what they will tell me. Red suit red horns. You know, that's how this works out. On the other hand, I have the the portion that gets mad at me because I breathe the word Santa, and uh, my family, when my kids go, is Santa real? I look at them, and I say, well, what do you think? That's how we solve that problem. They self-delude themselves, but that's how this works out. But then I have this part of the group that's like, you can't take away the magic of Santa. How dare you touch the magic of Santa? Don't you understand that Santa is the essence of childhood joy and magic? If you take away Santa, you're an evil human being. You are Satan. So either Santa's Satan or I'm Satan. But somewhere in the middle here, this gets worked out. This is not, I'm not joking. This debate over Santa Claus has become pretty strong in the evangelical church. Not a debate that has um, honestly been around for very long. Santa Claus is only about uh, the concept that we, as we understand him, in America, the Americanized Santa Claus is only about roughly uh, 200 to 150 years old. It's not an old concept. And how somehow it attached itself to Christmas versus St. Nicholas Day, which is December 6th, which is a different day. And so it's interesting as we tie all this together, I want to say, how in the world did we get to hear this childhood magic, this debate over whether we're lying? Because the debate was actually bigger in the past over a different issue. So I want to walk us backwards through history. You see, the Santa Claus you and I know and and love and grew up with, many of us, is really a a creation of several major pieces in American history. One of those, really, the way we understand how St. Nicholas looks is created by Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola kind of finalized the image of Santa before Hollywood took it and turned us into had Santa Claus and all that other stuff that comes out. And the Macy's and all this stuff helped with this. But really, it was through photos and pictures of these Coca-Cola ads along with Norman Rockwell pictures of St. Nicholas that really solidified the way that we view Santa Claus in this red suit with the, with the big, you know, the smoking pipe and all that stuff. And if you really trace it back even further, you'll land at a man named Nast. Nast was a political cartoonist, Thomas Nast, and he, in the early 1800s, and he actually was the first to draw up a picture of Santa Claus and publish it for Harper's Weekly on the covers. At that point, even Abraham Lincoln liked it so much he had to produce um, Santa Claus with the troops, and suddenly this emergence of someone who had never really been known in North America suddenly comes out. And the Santa Claus comes emerging forth from one particular position. There's actually two places you really discover him in early American history. And that is the first one is in a poem. A poem we probably all know very well. "Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Who has not heard of that? That's the question, right? All of us, how many of you, you even... If you're in my house, I heard it sung all the time. Well, was the night before Christmas and all through the house. You know, that song. It's out there. It's everywhere. And so, the night before Christmas was one of the most popular poems. And in the midst of that poem, it describes Santa Claus as being this jolly old elf with, you know, rosy cheeks and this big beard smoking his pipe. And he's got this big halo of smoke over his head. That ain't happening today. That's totally not PC, right? That's, you can't have Santa smoking pipes you know. But that that's the reality of who he was. And the smoking Santa was the original Santa, right? And so people galvanized around this picture of a Santa who loved children and dropped off gifts. In fact, we get the reindeer's names and everything from this poem. And all he was doing was referencing back to an odd story written by a man named Irving. Now, I'm gonna have to get to my note. Washington Irving joined early in the 1800s, early in the 1820s, the Saint Nicholas Society, which was a society in New York to propagate the the beloved the beloved nature of the Saint Nicholas, and as they had gathered together and spread out this information and celebrate this stuff, what, came, what, what became um, a, a satire piece was written by Washington Irving called the Knickerbocker's History of New York. And in the Knickerbocker History of New York, he lays out this guy, Santa Claus who was actually a way of young children would use the term for Dutch. Uh, how, they, they had a term, Santa Claus, that sounded like Santa Claus in Dutch, but we can't say it. In English, it comes out Santy Claus. And Santy Claus becomes this picture of this elf jumping from rooftop to rooftop in the Knickerbocker history that the Dutch people love to celebrate. From there, through the poem, through what Coca-Cola and all the pictures did, we land with our, San, our Santa Claus that we have today but who is he? Who is St. Nicholas? Because what's really interesting, if you just go back even 50 years prior to Washington Irving's idea of, in his book, and you ask somebody, do you know who Santa Claus is? They'd have no idea what you're talking about. You see, early on in the Protestant Reformation, in the, and especially here in North America, as the Puritans moved across, they didn't celebrate Santa Claus. They didn't celebrate Christmas you wouldn't have found Christmas mainly on uh, in the United States up until the early 1800s. Prior to that, it was considered something that you didn't do. It was too Catholic for the Protestant religion. It was just something that you didn't engage in, and so there was a very void, a giant void of any kind of Christmas time at all in the Protestant history, especially in the United States. The debate wasn't pretty much over whether Santa Claus was real or not, or whether you should tell your children. The debate was over whether you should let him into your home, whether you should let Christmas into your home. And here's why. Even the Catholic Church endorsed this kind of erasing of St. Nicholas because he'd become so popular in Europe that he was overcoming Mother Mary. St. Nicholas is the most popular and known Christian saint in all of church history, and we've erased him. Where did he go? How did we get here? Where has he come from? St. Nicholas, if, we, if you really begin to understand who he is and you start to examine the history of this man, he was, it's fascinating because you start going back and with all these legends that have been put up, you find out that they were all kind of put in place by a man named Metathesthenes. And I don't know if I say that name correctly, but they've, they've kind of glommed on other things from King Wenceslaus and this man, St. Nicholas. And these kind of divergent people merge into this picture of Santa Claus as we know him today. But if we step back into history further back, what you'll discover when you get into 270 A.D. when he was born is actually the Mother Teresa of their time. So let's look at him. Let's look at this St. Nicholas, this real Santa Claus, because the original St. Nicholas is an amazing example of Christ following. He's not for children. He's for all of us. He's a great example for all of us. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, what's interesting, no, St. Nicholas does not show up in your Bible. I I understand that. And you're going, Greg, why are you talking about a guy that's not in the Bible? And here's why. Because it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that before us. See, the Bible sets forth saints, or men and women, who have gone before us as a cloud of witnesses, people who are testifying to us about how to live our faith. Now, chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews lays out all, biblo- all these kind of biblical characters and how they've lived with faith. But that doesn't mean we stop there. There are so many Christian heroes in church history that we have completely ignored for whatever reason, because we don't like history, because I don't like to read, or whatever you find. But these Christian men and women of the past are heroes, people that you and I should glom onto and look at and understand. And that's what I want to do with Nicholas. I want us to take a peek at Nicholas and see who he is. And so, he was born in 270, and probably roughly around March 20th, they claim. I don't know how they know that. But the idea is that Nicholas was born to a home of Christian parents. In 270, it was not safe to be a Christian. In fact, Diocletian, who was the Roman Empire, emperor at the time, hated Christianity so badly, he set up a test system to eliminate Christians. And the way that you did that was you set up a bust of Caesar in the middle of the, in the middle of the mart, and everybody who came had to come up, take incense, and pinch, and throw, and burn it and, at Caesar in a way of worship, and say, Caesar is Lord. Christians wouldn't do this. They wouldn't compromise, even for a cultural norm as that. They would come, and they would say, no, Christ is Lord. I can't pinch incense to Caesar and claim that he's Lord. In the middle of all this, on the lower coast of modern-day Turkey, in a city called Patanera, something like that, I can never say these terms right all the time, but he, he, uh, Nicholas was born. His parents died at the age of when he was 14 in a house fire set by persecution. He inherited massive amounts of wealth because his parents were fairly wealthy. And at the age of 14, understanding what Christ had taught his parents, understanding what he had inherited from Paul who had evangelized that area... It was more blessed to give than to receive, and he gave every bit of his inheritance to the poor he knew around him. All of his money went away, and he entered into the clergy. And slowly but surely, he rose the ranks, and then quickly, actually, he became bishop. What's, what's, What's strange about him is he was 22 when he became bishop. This is not normal. This guy was somehow so beloved and so interesting, he rose quickly up the ranks to become Bishop of Myrna, which was the territory in which he'd grown up. It's a sea coastal territory, the south of Turkey. And so he, here he is dealing with sailors, dealing with Roman Empire. In the middle of the Diocletian time period, he actually found himself arrested, probably abused fairly severely, and thrown in jail for his Christian testimony. Nicholas, while in jail, many people have attested in the time of Diocletian, there were more bishops in jail. So many Christians were in jail. They weren't arresting normal thieves and things anymore because they didn't have any room. And finally, he would be released. When Constantine comes to power, Constantine, who we all know, is somehow this sinister, evil person, and just says, we're going to have a peace with Christianity. It didn't make it the official religion of Rome. He just said, we're going to have peace, and he released all the prisoners. The bishops returned their positions, and suddenly they were able to communicate to each other. And in the midst of all this, Nicholas begins some, continues his ministry. Children seem to have loved him according to most of the legends, and so it must be true in some sense. But one of the stories we know is that he was a giving man and a caring man about his own people. There was a man in his town who had no money. He was very poor, but he had three daughters. And the problem in that time period in his area was that if you had daughters and you didn't have a bride price, a dowry for them to set up their homes, they couldn't get married. And at that point, it was instead of holding on to them because they were so expensive, they would be whisked away either into slavery or into brothels. A father, mourning this because he was a Christian, hating the concept, knowing that this is what was going to happen, came to Nicholas and, and asked him to pray that God might give him, grant him mercy and help. And the night before Christmas, Nicholas comes along and takes three bags of gold just enough for a dowry, and throws them through the window. Legend is they fall on the shoes of the daughters or in the stockings, which is where we get stockings and shoes and stuff like that from. And why oranges are a symbol of St. Nicholas, three oranges, is because these are the three bags of gold that were thrown in through the window. At this point, he wakes up in the morning. His daughters are saved. They're able to get married, and life turns for this man. This is a commonality of his generosity. But Nicholas wasn't known for generosity. He was known for defending Jesus as well. In fact, Nicholas's name shows up on very many old lists of those who go to the council called Nicaea. Many of you have heard of Nicaea as kind of this evil plot put together by, Con- actually, by Constantine. Actually, what it was, was there was a debate in the church that had risen up by a man named Arius. Arius had kind of some interesting viewpoints about Jesus, actually claiming that Jesus was not God, but kind of this lesser semi-God. He called him a demiurge, just under God, the created God in a sense. And they would run around with, with slogans and get people all riled up with, there was a time when he was not claiming that Christ had a time where he didn't exist. And so there was this huge hot debate that had formed from this man Arius. Well, the, the bishops, now free to talk to each other, said, we need to handle this. This is getting way too big. Called a council together in Nicaea. was splitting the church. And in that council in Nicaea, they debated over the Trinity and came to the argument that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were all God, three persons, one God, fully all of them having all the attributes of God. And we, what we know as the Trinity was codified at that place in Nicaea. What's interesting is Nicholas is on the side of the Trinitarians. One of the most odd stories is, and this sounds odd for Nicholas, you've got to imagine He's this little Greek guy. They actually took his skull out and reconfigured his face in a very interesting documentary so we kind of know what he looked like. He had a broken nose. But this guy comes out and he's, he's probably a stocky, short Greek guy sitting there. And he walks up to one of the Arians in the middle of their conversation, gets an argument, socks him in the face. This is Nicholas we're talking about here, guys. St. Nicholas. Can you imagine the jolly old elf punching somebody in the face over a theology debate? It's exactly what he did. He was arrested, put aside, probably didn't go to the rest of the Nicene council, was beloved enough that he received back his bishopric and wasn't kept away. But ultimately, he was known as a defender of the faith for that. And Nicholas wouldn't, wouldn't back down on his faith. He stood for it. He fought for justice when people were wrongly accused and about to be punished by having their heads taken off. Or, and he fought for lower taxation. Nicholas is well known for his plight for justice. And we think of him as a guy who bounces around on roofs. Here is a man who is faithful to follow Jesus, a man who is faithful to apply the gospel principles in his life. So venerated, he is one of the most venerated saints in Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy and beloved in Protestants. He is the most popular saint in history. And again, I reiterate, we lost him. Where'd he go? What's going on in the church is that we're forgetting our history. And what I want to say is, we can learn the power of Christ falling from somebody like St. Nicholas. I and mean, you can teach it to your children, and we can no longer have a St. Nicholas for kids. We can have a St. Nicholas for all. It begins with this idea that we are really called to imitate those who imitate Christ. Paul says this himself. He says, listen, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And what he's saying is, where you see me following Jesus, where you see me living like Christ, I'm going to follow Christ. You should follow Christ. Where we see other saints in history following Jesus, we should act appropriately, go with them. Yes, we have the Bible. Praise God. We can see what Christ lived like. But guess what? You don't live in the first century and you don't live in Galilee so it's really hard sometimes to imitate exactly how Jesus did something in the 21st century. Amen? And yet, when you see a saint who's figured it out, and a saint is not some super special person. It's a Christian who loves and follows Jesus Christ. A Christian is a saint. But when we see a saint, somebody who is following Jesus, you should imitate the way they do it. You should take the good and follow after him. And St. Nicholas does this in a completely different context. He lives out a, a life of following Christ in a persecution complex or a, a context, in a, in a world filled with difficulty. How many of you guys have little kids that have gone through the copycat phase? Anybody? My son, Jonathan, we love him. We're glad he's with us, I reiterate. But he like, he's in that phase. Like Literally, if something goes on. He's like, Jonathan, Jonathan. Stop that. Stop that. I'm going to punch you. I'm going to punch you. You know, it's like this, it's kind of, that's what his brother's saying to him, not me. So, it's like the, the, there's just, he loves to just run around and copy people. I'm going to say what you say. I'm going to do what you're doing. And, And that's the reality how you and I should live after Christ. And that's how you and I should live after the saints of history. These people have taught us so much and we've forgotten it. We look around and we wonder, where were the Christians in this time period? They were there. We have books written about them. We can know these people. They can aid us as we start to live in a radically different world. That's far more culturally different than we grew up in. Nicholas lived in one of those worlds, and we can learn by Nicholas by imitating his stand for the faith. You see, Nicholas understood his theology. He went to the council of Nicaea. He was able to stand up and proclaim what he knew and what he was saying. And he knew how to defend it and stand firm for it. How many of us are now having to learn how to defend our faiths when we weren't ready? Because you're encountering all kinds of websites, books. The proliferation of information is allowed for those who who are outside of our faith to think they understand it better than you do. And many of us are afraid to examine the truths of Scripture and begin to examine the questions that are out there because we're not so sure we can answer them. Can I encourage you? You can. Can I encourage you? You can explore those questions, that there are good, reasonable, logical answers, and that many of us have been just fooled that there are these objections that we can't overcome. I want to encourage you that even Nicholas understood the concept that Jude taught. And when we looked at Jude, he told us this Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, Nicholas took that seriously and actually punched somebody. I'm not saying that you need to go punch somebody, that's not the point. But are you willing to stand firm for your faith? Can you defend what you believe? Are you going to leave that up to the pastor? Leave that up to the bishop. Leave that up. I don't know. I think that as we walk with Christ, we need to be able to know the Word of God, answer the objections. It makes us stronger. Don't be afraid. Engage. Ask the questions with an open, sincere heart, and, and you'll find these answers. Do you know the difference between Mormonism and Christianity, for example? Jehovah's Witnesses, which are, those two groups are plenty around us. Oh, well, they're just Christians. No, they're not. They're radically different theological beliefs about Jesus and about salvation. Do you understand how to talk to a Muslim man or woman if they come to you with their understanding of your faith and try to tell you, look, God has a son because he physically had intercourse with Mary? Yeah. Wrong sermon series, sorry. The reality is that this Stuff is out there being challenged from the mosques down the street to the Jehovah's Witness Center in, in right over here in Norco to all the all the Mormon churches and, and, and stakes around us. Can you understand it the difference between Scientology and your faith? Atheism, subjections. Guys, we need to be able to stand firm. Second, Nicholas would challenge us with this so we can learn from Nicholas by imitating his stand for Jesus. He lived in a time of persecution. Guys, we do not live in a time of persecution. We're about to live in a time of persecution. We do not live in a time of persecution, but he did. In a time in which it was a threat to even claim Christ on your lips, to be thrown into jail, to be thrown into situations in which your reputation was besmirched in the public eye, he was willing to follow Christ. He understood what it meant to know Jesus and to be satisfied that Christ had died on the cross for his sins what it meant to give his life away. And he was willing to stand. But how many of us on the internet, how many of us on our Instagram pages, how many of us on our Facebook pages aren't even willing to engage when falsehood is laid up? Oh, that's for somewhere else. How many of us are shocked at the treatment Christians are receiving today? As if This is something like we, we, we never expected this to happen. Yet yeah, Jesus told us, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But fear him, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So this, this is a reality that you and I, we can't play games. Jesus is willing to say, I don't know this guy. If we say we don't know him, if we're not willing to stand with Christ. Christ is not willing to stand with us. Maybe we never made it that serious, but that's how serious Jesus put it. What are we going to fear? God or loss of a reputation? You know, we were looking at the things that ISIS is doing to children, and I think some of us are wondering, is there more guts in those kids than in North American Christians? Children losing arms, families standing up to Boko Haram, and all the Christian persecution that's in the front page right now I think it challenges us to ask the question, could we do that? Are we so secure in our faith or are we so pampered by the the things of this world? Nicholas is a reminder, a young man who grew up in a pampered home of that fact that we can learn and we can be able to stand amidst persecution. And not to be surprised by it, Jesus put it this way, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This should not be a surprise that when we stand for Christ, there will be persecution. It shouldn't be a surprise that when we stand firm for the things that the Bible teaches, that we're not going to get beat up a bit for it. St. Nicholas stood up for it. He stood firm for it. In fact, what we see is he had a broken nose over it, as far as we can tell, from the forensics on his own skull that they brought out of the tombs of Bari. It's a fascinating person. And he challenges us with good thoughts. Finally, or next, we can learn from Nick by imitating his stand for justice. Nicholas stood for justice. He stood for against the poverty being abused, the the poor being abused. He, He stood to affirm that people shouldn't be killed for not actually doing the crimes. These kind of things. Guys, does it bother us to realize that rich people get off a lot of things? Speeding tickets, you know, because they can pay for it. Does it bother us when we see people locked in jails because maybe they didn't have the high-powered lawyer? Does it bother us when we see the poor being discriminated against in other cases? I mean, you're saying, Greg, that sounds so liberal. No, there is reality in a lot of this stuff. Does it bother us, though? Does injustice bug us? The fact that people get away with things, the fact that a society has ceased to want even help, we have to make a good Samaritan law. Does it bother us to see justice failing? It should because Christians are supposed to be the kind of people who are for justice. In a description of the Israelite imitating God, Moses writes this in Deuteronomy 10 18. He says, he executes, speaking of the Israelite, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. Are we concerned with these two? Or do they just handle themselves? He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Are we really concerned about the sojourner? Well, what's that? The alien is another word for that. The refugee crisis may be something that, have we thought about that as Christians? Would we be willing to really allow Muslim men and women into our very homes? Or is there a deep seated racism and hatred inside of our hearts? Is there an opportunity here to propagate the gospel? Is there an opportunity here to teach about Jesus Christ? Maybe. But justice is something we must stand for. Jesus came and said it's his purpose. In fact, in the book of Luke, in his own synagogue, he stands up and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Why just the poor? Because everyone in some way is poor. We all have great need, spiritually, especially in, the mid, in our middle-class society, how many of our friends actually may have plenty materially, but they're breaking down mentally, physically, over stress, and spiritually because they just have trusted their, they've trusted their money before they've trusted God. He says, he's sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. How many of us are visiting our uh, people in the jails who are ripe to hear the gospel, ready to know that they could be set free because they know their sin? Recovering sight to the blind, and liberty to set, set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's so much here, so much, so much we can do to care for humanity, to love our neighbors as ourselves, so that maybe we start there. How many of us know our neighbors well enough you know their problems? What a season to get to know your neighbor. Well enough that you could pray and care about their problems let alone the homeless, let alone the others around us. Yes, these are difficult issues. I'm not saying they're simplified, but they are indeed opportunities for us to bring the gospel into our neighborhoods. There is a ripe harvest of people ready to receive Jesus Christ if we can just simply show that we care. Nicholas continues to challenge us by imitating his giving. How many of us at the age of 14, if inherited in a huge estate, would give it all away? And then be focused on giving to the poor constantly through your life. A lot of us are more struggling with, should I give money to that guy on the side of the road or should I not? Let's be honest. That's where we're at, right? That's okay. I mean, I'm there. My son, Jonathan, again, I'm so glad he's with us, was sitting, um, was sitting behind me and we pull up over here off Magnolia. And he, this was, is this was about the same time period. He's like, dad, that guy's asking for money. You need to give him money. I'm going, he knows I'm a pastor. He knows I teach Jesus. All right, fine. You know, that's, that's how I get guilted into it. My kids ask, okay? So all of us struggle with this. Giving is hard because we in America have been told, look, your money is what you stand firm with. It's what protects you. If you've got it, you can do a lot more than if you don't got it. And yet here's Nicholas saying, no, I gave it all away. And yet he lived to 80-something years old. How's that work? Because Nicholas understood Jesus set it up. He said, you'll either love mammon or you'll love the Lord. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have money. That's not what I'm saying. But where's your trust? When you're in a pinch, when things are difficult, what do you depend on? Is money going to save you? Or is your Lord your sustenance? And Nicholas examples for us the ability to have the Lord be our sustenance in our direction. In fact, he understood Jesus' call that we give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you When you live in that manner, you have to depend on the Lord. You have to depend on Him providing. You have to depend on Him sustaining. And why should we care about giving? Why should this be such a deep point? Because God was the one who gave first. John 3.16 says it clearly. That God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. I almost lost one of my boys. That's frightening. Horrible feeling. I have three boys. I'll tell you what. I still wouldn't be willing to give them for your sins. But God, who we sinned against, who we, we were an enemy of, loved us so incredibly, he gave us his only son. his only son, that if we would trust, believe in him, he would give us eternal life. See, Nicholas just imitates the God of the giving. It's not Santa Claus who runs around on rooftop to rooftop giving out gifts every Christmas. It's actually God who dwells in every church and in every Christian's heart, who gives constantly the greatest gift ever known, the gift of Jesus Christ. And when that gift is given, it, it moves us to be givers in all kinds of ways. Nicholas is just a challenge of that. And what I hope we see is that we don't have to drop elf, elf-like Santa off somewhere, but we can actually pull in the reality and Santa can be a challenge for all of us this Christmas. We could start the season off with the understanding that we have a great, a great example in a man named St. Nicholas that if we just knew who he was, would challenge us to live in ways that maybe we never thought we could. As he follows Christ, so let us follow him. It's just a challenge. I hope you take it. Would you bow your heads with me? You know, in this room this morning, it's sizable enough that maybe you're hearing going, I never thought I'd hear a sermon about Santa Claus, but I want you to hear about God. You see, Santa Claus in our modern context knows, when you're, knows it when you're sleeping and when you're awake, knows if you're naughty or if you're nice. And we all know that everybody ends up on the nice list. But with God, the real God who actually does know when you're sleeping, does know when you're awake, who does know all your sins and all the things you've done wrong, he, he does keep people on the naughty list. See, everyone on earth has sinned. Everyone ends up on that list. All of us have been separated from God because of our sin, but God didn't leave it there. He came to earth as a human, Jesus Christ. And there, he lived a perfect, sinless life. Why? Because he loved us, and he wanted us a way to have a relationship with his Father, with God in heaven, so that he was so passionate, he went to the cross bore our sins on it for us if you would trust him. And that's what that passage meant. And this morning, maybe that's what you need. Maybe you realize the sin in your life. You've got so much of it. You can't work it off. There's nothing you can do to erase it. There's no work that's good enough. Rather, you need to receive the first gift of the season, which is Jesus Christ himself. And and God offers that to you today. And if you would like to be forgiven of your sins, to begin that walk with God, to know Him. And right now, I want to give you that opportunity to receive the work of Christ on the cross. If that's you right where you're at, just let me know. You're just saying, yes, that's me. I need, I need to be forgiven of my sin. Just put your hand up. I want to walk you through an opportunity to talk with God and receive that gift. If that's you, just let me know. If that's where you're at, just begin here. It starts with what's called confession. And you lay out your sins, just confessing the things that you've done to God. Let Him know. And as you're done closing with that, I want you to imagine then that you're turning away from all your sins. It's called repentance, and you're turning to God. And now you ask God to take your sins and place them on Christ. Let him know that you trust that you've been forgiven. Ask him to come into your life now and lead you through the rest of it. And Father, I lift up anyone who may be working through that process this morning. Who's talking to you and thank you that you understand our hearts. And you receive our faith, even though it comes at the beginning. In fact, you you give it to us so we can give it back. And I ask that you'd bless them as they receive this gift from you. And God, that you would just open their eyes and their hearts to be able to follow you. Let us all be able to walk with you in a better way this season. So that you would receive glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.